0: And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we are a blessed people to know you, to know the certainty of the power of Christ, his incarnation. His death and his resurrection. And Lord, as we consider today a few thoughts that you revealed to us from your word uh, concerning those days that preceded the crucifixion of Christ, Lord, we just pray that you would be pleased uh, to give us just an increased sense of amazement as to who you are in your power and as you unfolded your purposes when we consider our Savior and all that he suffered on our behalf. Lord, we just pray that you would move our hearts to deeper levels of love and worship and appreciation, that we would uh, give you glory and that you would continue to inform our minds something more of the depth and breadth and height and width of the love of God in Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. So as we take up this morning, There are going to be selected passages of Scripture. We're going to look at this section that oft is referred to as the triumphal entry. Then we're going to spend a little bit of time in Gethsemane. Then we're going to look a little bit at the arrest of Christ. And just to see how these things unfold. So the first aspect that I want us to begin to see, though we see this throughout all of it, are the signs that are involved even in this triumphal entry. Now there are certain details that often get left off and I want to try to bring them in so that we get a little bit more maybe than we've remembered before even though it's a familiar event different Gospels present different details and we tend to emphasize one over another so I want to begin to to look at these signs because there are these particular signs that further go on to evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus was the one who would sit on the throne of David, that He was the promised one of God, that He was the Lamb of God who would be the Savior of the world. And we know that as we read the Gospels, those who have read it, it constantly will tell us in many places, and this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And sometimes it'll tell us which prophet, Isaiah or Jeremiah, or sometimes it will simply say the prophets. Here again, as we take this up, I want us to begin to see something of these signs, and the first sign that is there in this section is the sign of the cult. Now, as this, uh, the Matthew version gives us details that we often don't see, and that's that when the... They came to the the town as he was approaching Jerusalem. He sends two disciples into the nearest village to bring this colt that he will ride on. Now, it tells us this in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen as I read Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey so this was a prophetic word that was stated to them and here the scripture is telling us this is being fulfilled jesus coming in this way was effectively an announcement now i want us to note this what, they, what the two disciples would find as they went into the nearby village is a donkey and together with that donkey, a colt. And Jesus said, bring them to me. I mean, in our memories, usually it's just get the colt, bring the colt, and there's only one. But there is the donkey and the colt and and part of the language of that it communicates something to us that would otherwise be unknown a colt does not need to accompany its mother donkey any longer once it's been weaned once it's been trained once it's learned to bear a burden or bear the weight of a human so generally speaking if the donkey and the colt are still in unison together it's because as the scripture tells us it is a cult that had never been ridden on now I myself do not specialize in donkeys or horses or, or, or any such field animals but we are all aware of the likelihood that when a horse and or donkey has never been ridden there is a, a, a moment of experience where, where, where there's a little jostling, maybe there's some bucking and often horses have to be broken or trained there, there is something that has to take place a season of training and preparation and that training takes place by someone getting on it and that, that usually is, is there's a refusal by nature of that beast but here you have this colt that has never been ridden on. And here is the Son of God, the Master and Lord of all creation. And the scripture says, as he sits on it, it's good. And again, it doesn't have to be thoroughly trained on, on walking on the road, not running off the side. It's just one of those simple evidences of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus over his creation. That he is able to do, he is able to speak, even in this context, a curse upon a fig tree. And what happens to that fig tree? It withers and will never again yield fruit. He is able to sit on on a a colt that is yet unbroken and untrained. And it is docile and obedient. When we begin to just see these little things, it was just uh, things that, Initially when the disciples would see them It would make them scratch their head and wonder the the waves and the water obey him the trees Obey his command and they fall under his curse animals yield to his will What manner of man is this? Might the question be And what would the answer to that be? he is a man like no other. Like none who came before, like none who would come after, He alone is the one through whom everything was made that was made. He is the eternal Son of God. Come in the form of sinful flesh, come in the form of man. To live as we live, to hunger as we hunger, to hurt as we hurt, and to die. Even as we die, God's own son, the eternal son of God coming in that experience, just shocking. But the the cult is just kind of that little example to show his exceeding superiority in doing what no man would think would be commonly possible. And not only does he do that but it also fulfills that prophecy so that all might know here is the Messiah. This is the promised king coming to you in this way. Not only do... uh, Do they go and they bring these animals and he rides on them? But then it tells us also here in this passage things that are often left off. In order to get on this, they they had no, again, it wouldn't have been a properly saddled donkey because no one's planning to ride on this as it's not yet broken or trained. And so the disciples, those two disciples, throw their own cloaks over the back of this and Jesus sits on that and then the scripture here goes on to tell us that uh, what it says in verse 8 and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road now that's um I mean we call this Palm Sunday traditionally we don't call it Cloak Sunday do we Because somehow, again, that that notion is not there. And generally speaking, we don't... I mean, when's the last time you laid down your cloak for somebody? Now let me back up even further. When's the last time you wore a cloak? All right. So since you don't wear one, you're probably not going to lay it down. But again, you know the different attire and different clothing of different eras and different seasons. And you're at least aware of the notion of, uh, that would approach or appear chivalrous and caring. There is a puddle of mud and someone takes off their coat and lays it down so that the person can walk across. Now generally speaking, how useful is that coat just after the passing? You're not going to put it back on you're not going to pick it up and say are you cold too and try to put it the coat just needs to be rolled up and put away because it's done generally until it's washed but here they're laying down their cloaks note this on the road for what? a donkey to walk over it now again I haven't had a lot of experience with donkeys walking over things but I'm assuming when it's done, it's not exceedingly clean. And can potentially be damaged in some way. It, it, there is, there is, it, it's important to note this as well. And it, it hails back, really listen as I read to you from 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13. 2 Kings 9 13. This is when Jehu is established as king and this is how it unfolded in the history of Israel then in haste every man took off his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king so what you have piling up here is this laying down of cloaks in the past is in their mind the recognition it is paying homage to the coming King it is in their mind their hope is that as Jesus comes he will now take up his kingship to be the king of Israel to do all of the things that have been prophesied and promised for us and so there is in this moment in which is What's so shocking, because it was even mentioned a moment ago by Keith Here on this day, they're paying homage And in a sense, with their words, and with their acts, they're acknowledging him as king And they're they're expressing their love, their adoration, their appreciation, their joyful acceptance And then what will they do days later? They will join that chorus stirred up by his enemies and shout together with them, Crucify him. Crucify him. And as they do, Pilate is going to put something over the top of that cross and write it in. A number of different languages, and you know what that sign is going to say? The sign where generally it would declare the reason why this man is being put to death. It was the place where it would show what was the crime of the individual. And since no crime could be found, since over and over Pilate says this man is innocent this man is innocent he's done nothing deserving of death I find no guilt in this man he said it over and over again so what could he put above there he put the only thing that he knew to put king of the Jews what those people themselves had recognized, paying homage to him as he entered, declaring from their hearts that would be the only accusation that could be leveled against him is that he is the king of the Jews. And we know he was asked by Pilate concerning that. Are you a king? And what was the answer? My kingdom is not of this world. And that's part of the problem because Jesus did not meet their earthly expectations. What they wanted from a Messiah was not freedom from their sin. Righteousness and salvation as a gift of God. What they wanted was freedom from Rome. Freedom from the earthly oppressions. Freedom and not only freedom in that sense. They also were looking to a day Where now they would be the new Rome in a sense they would be the head and not the tail they would rule over All of the outlying areas and the king would sit in Jerusalem and all of them would rule with him they would be the ones holding special citizenship they would be the ones holding special privileges they would be the ones who could go around and make demands of others in a show of superiority that's not what Christ brought what Christ brought was far more glorious enduring and abiding But it was not the desire of men's hearts. And not only did they lay down their cloaks in that sign and show an acknowledgement of royal homage. But it tells us further in this passage. It says that um, still in Matthew 21, still in verse 8. They spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Again, I I would hazard a guess that few of us have ever done such. When's the last time you thought, you know what? Someone's coming over. Let me cut some branches and lay it on the road. Let me cover the driveway in branches we do the opposite generally we rake any leaves off of there that are on there but these were again fresh leaves now we also have in the parallel passages the indication of palm leaves or palm trees now these would often be things that in the process of pilgrimage People would gather up primarily in Jericho on their way because they would be used in uh, the Passover feast and in that festival as part of wave offerings. Okay? And so there, there, is, there is this wonderful woven sense in which this, these things that they would use in the process of their pilgrimage and in the worship that accompanied the Passover in the tradition of the Jews, where they would sort of wave these things as a wave offering to God. Now, I know that's going to sound weird, but go ahead and go back and read the Old Testament and read through the book of Exodus and Leviticus, and you can see the notion of wave offerings. I know you know drink offerings and grain offerings and animal offerings, but wave offerings were also there where you would wave something before the Lord, and that would represent... uh, adoration and praise and worship and so you get this sense that here they're cutting down trees and they're trying to lay out this beautiful pathway for the coming king and in addition they're taking these palms that they had brought for worship and for their wave offerings and that is now being redirected for a a less than common usage towards Christ as he enters in. It's almost a tacit acknowledgement or something that Here is here is the son of God. Here is the representative of God. Here is the one sent by God Oh that they knew he was he was indeed sent by God But not merely only sent by God that the one who is coming is himself God and yes, he is the one who deserves all of our sacrifice all of our praise All of our gifts, but he himself, as they will soon reject him, will be the fullest and the final sacrifice for sin. Bringing really to an end all of those symbolic sacrifices that represented the atonements and the covering of sin. Jesus himself, once for all time, would lay down his life for the sins of his people remarkable signs that are unfolding in all of this. And so you see the colt, and you see the cloaks, and you see the cut branches, and then lastly you hear the cries. Listen to the cries that they're singing. Much like the song that, the last song that we sang together, the things that they were singing were this, Matthew 21, 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 2115 again says Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, down in uh, Mark 11 parallel passage verse 10 says blessed is he is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So Hosanna to the one who comes in the Lord name of the Lord. Hosanna to he who comes In the kingship of David Hosanna in the highest now as I say that Probably few of us though. There may be a couple Could exactly say what Hosanna means And we've got a few words from the scriptures and from Christian tradition that have kind of crept their way in Hosanna hallelujah Maranatha Wonderful words, but oftentimes if you ask the, uh, the general believer, what does Hosanna mean? Uh, I don't know. What does hallelujah mean? What does Maranatha mean? I'm not going to tell you all of them. I'm hoping you're going to say, oh, I got to go find that out. I got to search that. But we will consider today Hosanna. To understand Hosanna, believe it or not, it was read to you in our call to worship. Psalm 118 verse 25 declares for us in Hebrew and even in their days Aramaic the, the word Hosanna or more Hebraically or uh, rendered it's, it's, it's Hosiana, but we just twisted a little bit to make it easier to say. And let me read it for you, Psalm 118, verse 25. Uh, In terms of the translation, it begins for us, in our translations, with the word Hosanna. And this is the way it's stated in the ESV. Save us, we pray. That's it. Save us, we pray. Now, in the King James, it says, save now, we beseech you. It is a pleading and an imploring for saving or deliverance. Now, So that's the origins of the word Hosanna. Save now, we pray. Save, save now. Save us. We need you to save us. But what often happens in the course of time, words take a, they start to lose their luster and are used more generally. When it went, because when you get the phrase, in this day Hosanna in the highest you realize that, that now it's kind of slowly degenerated in a sense to kind of mean praise to you praise to you but what we don't what we should not miss in this the reason why it's come down to take a more colloquial understanding in this age of praise to you is because the thing that moves us most to ascribe praise to God is what? That God saves us. And the one who's coming in is Jesus. And what is the name Jesus? The God who saves. And so it's almost as if bound up in in the events and in the language of this festival and the welcoming of Christ. Here comes, riding on a cult, fulfilling the prophecies, the King of Israel. The God who saves us and we cry out to him, save us, we pray, praise the Lord, praise the one who comes in the name of the Lord, save us in the highest, praise God in the highest. And so there's this, there's this wonderful weaving together uh, of the, the tapestry of language in this section. In, in such wonderful signs and we again know uh, in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 God had stated this to David. Let me just read it for you 2nd Samuel 7 I'm just going to read verse 12 and 13. It says to David when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body. He will be a descendant according to the flesh of David. And I will establish his kingdom. Now most of us are thinking at that point he's referring to Solomon. But listen to verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Brothers and sisters, does Solomon still sit on the throne of Israel? No, and the house that Solomon built for his name, is that still standing? No, but Christ would build a house for his name, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ will build a spiritual temple that will never be destroyed, that will never be broken down. Christ will establish in himself a kingdom and a kingship that rules and endures until every generation. He himself indeed will sit on the throne, will rule at the right hand of his father forever. What an amazing prophecy. Even as they note that he is the promised one, Hosanna to the one who comes, as it says, um, Blessed is the one who comes in the kingdom of our father David. They had themselves no full idea. Just how Christ would fulfill that. What remarkable signs. The colt and the cloaks and the cut branches and the cries of the people. But we move on uh, from that. And I want to consider a moment in Gethsemane to the sorrow. And consider the sorrow of Christ. And even when I, we consider it. Uh, I want us to consider this as best we can. But I don't think that we will know the depth of sorrow that christ knew but most of us can somehow possibly go uh, and remember some of the heaviest measures of sorrow that we've experienced the loss of loved ones the loss of dear friends and people close to us um uh when things when when people that we've trusted and care have betrayed us and turned against us and belittled us we 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 all experienced to some extent at different times some degree of anguish and suffering and struggle want us to begin to, in order to not take light of it you, you if you remember the, those seasons and those days where 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 you know everything within you wanted to close down and and there was just an ache that that you could not escape Want us to understand that what Jesus is saying here. In Mark chapter 14, says it this way in Mark 14, verse 32, this is after he's uh, uh, shared the Passover meal with them, and then the, the, they leave the Passover meal that's in the upper room there in Jerusalem, and they pass over. They'll have to pass over a little bridge that is over the, the Kidron Valley in order to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is like uh, olive means olive pressed it's sort of at the foot of the Mount of Olives right but it's also interesting to note that at this time when when you leave Jerusalem what has been happening is this is the Passover meal so for the for the last day they have been sacrificing thousands and thousands of lambs at the temple for the people then to take back for their sac- Passover meals. So at this time, the Kidron Valley that they would walk over that had a small river or a creek running under it would be running absolutely red with blood. The color and smell of it would evoke the sense of sacrifice and death. And so as, as they go over, Jesus knows what he's about to face. What he's about to fulfill. And he would pass by this river flowing with blood. And the scent of it. And he would know that he is about to shed his own blood. And the scripture tells us as they they come to this, this place. He tells them in verse 32. He went to the place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And listen. It says began to be greatly distressed and troubled i mean it these words are are somewhat synonymous here the the idea of greatly distressed and troubled but they're doubled up so that you get the sense this was serious now it's easy for us to think well All right, this is Jesus. He's the son of God. He's known that this day was coming his whole life. He knows that once he dies, he's going to rise again in three days. He's already told the disciples that multiple times, that he's going to die and rise again in three days. So since he knows it's all going to work out, why would he be distressed? Why would he worry about it? It's all going to be good. That's we we say that and there is truth to that, but that's because we do not understand the extent of sorrow and suffering that Christ bore. We don't get it. It tells us he was and and it piles up these words greatly distressed and troubled in verse 34. It then says, and he said to them, my soul is. Is very sorrowful, even unto death. It, it, the, again, to express the sense of it, 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 it's it's the the weight on it. And you've met people. You even recently we've been reading Moses at time. If this is how it's going to be, then just take my life. I I I. It, the, the anguish that I'm feeling is more than I can take. It's more than I can endure. I feel like the only escape for this anguish is death. I mean, I'm sure if you've not, and I hope you haven't experienced that level, you've heard of or know people who have. That's the degree of anguish that Jesus himself was sensing and facing. The way that it's stated in Luke, if you were to look at the parallel in Luke 22, verse 44, it says of Jesus, now that's after he's prayed a few times, and then he comes back, and angels come and minister to him, it says. It's a strange language of of, uh, verse 43 of Luke 22. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, I mean, he was in such agony and distress that he needed an angel from heaven to strengthen him. I mean, that's clearly something we don't quite understand. But we acknowledge it. And then it goes on to say in verse 44, and being in agony. And this particular word for agony... Is used nowhere else in the entire scriptures this is a unique word used exclusively here of Christ and it speaks of an extensive measure of internal anguish and distress that we just can't fathom being in agony it says of Christ he prayed more Earnestly, with even more intensity, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. I mean, you you get the sense of this. I mean, it's hard for us to really know it, and and it's clear that the disciples who went with Jesus, even those three who went cl- uh, with him so far, they ended up falling asleep each time that he would go. They did. They. We're sorrowful. It says that they fell asleep sorrowful, but the extent of it—have you ever been? I mean, some people get, can be so sorrowful that they just don't want—they just want to sleep all day. But it can be even more than that. The sorrow can be so extensive you can't even sleep, you can't rest, you can't. It, the intensity, and so Christ pouring out to where the sweat is dropping, even as drops of blood and in the, the midst of this sorrow and anguish just look what it says go with me you please do return back momentarily to mark 14. because in the midst of his sorrow it's quite something to see his prayer because who could better show us how to deal with our own struggles and sorrow and anguish of spirit than Christ. And look with, really look in, in chapter, in, in Mark 14, look at verse 36 with me. And he says, Abba, Father. So he knows the personal intimacy that he shares with the Father. Isn't that helpful? Even if everyone would seem to turn away from us, and he knows soon everyone will, his disciples will flee. Peter, who follows, will deny him. Others will turn and soon be mocking him and mistreating him. He knows. And he says, Abba, Father. And then the first thing that you see in there is he acknowledges God's absolute sovereignty. What what are the things he says? Abba, Father. For you, or all things are Possible for you. Brothers and sisters, isn't that glorious? Whatever the world may be doing, can God stop it? Whatever someone's doing against us, can God stop it? Whatever we are feeling within ourselves, can God comfort us? Can he restore us? Can he renew us? oh how glorious all things are possible with you no matter what is going on no matter who is doing it it's not me that's even if i am out of control even if others are seemingly controlling me every single being every single thought, every single feeling, every single action and reaction is nonetheless able to be overpowered, overcome by God. All things are possible for you. I mean, could there be more comfort in any circumstance than to know That this God, who is my Abba Father, this one who cares for me, he knows what I am facing, he knows what is going on, and he, if it is his will, is able to change it right now. Does he need a week? Does he need a month to work out a plan? Or can he say, Let there be light, and there was light? (laughs) I mean, this is the God. All things are possible. So he the first thing that he declares in the midst here in the midst of his sorrow and anguish, as he's been re strengthened by the angel to pray with, with greater intensity and earnestness. he says, He says, All things are possible for you, acknowledging God's absolute sovereignty. And then he pleads with him to remove the cup cup represents the suffering that he would bear even frighteningly more commonly it represents the outpouring of God's wrath which is really scary because most of the time when we consider what we call the passion of Christ because and some people are confused about why do we call it the passion it's we should call it the pain But passion refers to an old Latin word that was a a word for suffering. So that passion only later began to take on the the sense of intense emotions. Its historic meaning was was that of suffering. Remove this cup. Now we often focus on the whippings, the scourging, the crown of thorns. The spitting and the mocking all of that was horrendous. But that's not the fullness of this cup. The cup is the wrath of God. Where he who is light. Perfect light the light of the world through whom all life exists. Would take upon his self. He who is righteous. Would take our sin in his own body on the tree. And the one who is the source of all light and all life. As he is on the cross. What happens from noon until three o'clock? Do you know? It goes dark. As he who is light. And perfect. And pure and righteous. Takes on his own body, our sin, our guilt, and the wrath and punishment of God that is due us. And we cannot understand that cup. And praise God, we will never have to drink of that cup. Because Christ drank of that cup for us in its entirety but he tells, remove that cup. And what did, what did the Father say? Was the cup removed from him? No. Jesus would go to the cross and he would drink that cup. How comforting that is for me to know when I'm struggling, when I'm, when I'm go, dealing with circumstances, when I cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need this. Lord, please do this. There are times that he says no. And you know what I'm able to recognize at those times? His will is wiser than mine. His purposes are perfect and pure. And you know what I can cry out to God even if and pour out my heart to him with my need. And if he says no, it's not because he does not love me. The father loved the son with a manner and measure of love that we cannot comprehend. By God's grace, we get to enter into that love in the beloved that that love is now poured out upon us as well But Jesus himself Was worthy of the love of God And there's not a moment That he was not loved by the father and yet The answer was no You will go through it You will suffer it and so We saw the sovereignty of God. We see that um, the recognition that there is a struggle, that there is sorrow, that there is suffering that is coming and or in his life. And yet, what is his response? In Mark, it is this. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. In Matthew, it is the more familiar one to us. Nevertheless, not my will. But yours be done. Starts with an absolute de- declaration of the sovereignty of God. Recognizes the struggles and sufferings that are, that are present and that are coming for him in his life. And then ultimately submits himself to the will of the Father. An absolute submission and service. And he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. And so we, we see that, uh, uh, what an amazing picture in the suffering of Christ, in, in that emotional suffering. But beyond the, what, I, what, I'm, what I've called here the sorrow, the, the inner torment and inner anguish, the scriptures then record for us also the outer suffering of Christ. And we look at that just a little bit until we... Uh, get to look next week at his death and resurrection let us look at the suffering savior in luke chapter 18 verse 32 jesus is speaking to his disciples and this is what he explains to them concerning himself the son of man for he will be delivered over the gentiles he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But look what verse 34 says. But they understood none of these things. I mean, the saying was hidden from them. When you read those words, what is hard to understand about those words? Every single sentence is perfectly clear. There's no trick words he's going to be delivered over mocked shamefully treated spit upon flogged Killed and on the third day rise again And yet here are the the disciples who had been with him all along I don't know what this guy's talking about. This doesn't make any sense to me Why? Because we've got to understand and the scriptures give us these instructions so many times spiritual things Are spiritually discerned. Only the Holy Spirit. When Jesus rises from the dead. He will breathe on them and say receive the Spirit. And on the reception of the Spirit. Then he will explain all the things. And now it finally makes sense. Now they understand. The the full import of it. And, And there's a sense in which practically. When we say these things today. The history of it. And the physical experience of it by Christ. People can understand that. But the spiritual reality that on that cross, Christ took upon himself the sins of all his people that they might know full and eternal forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. You say that to somebody who's an unbeliever, and I don't know what you're talking about there, but I understand that you say he was buried and rose again. Because spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. But Jesus says what it's going to be like. In John 19, 1 and 2, it says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, it's interesting because there are different things that happened in those days. And I want to try to tie this up uh, somewhat quickly. Um, oftentimes in those days, if someone was condemned to die, they would receive thirty nine or 40 lashes. If you weren't condemned to die, you'd receive 39 minus 1. That was a common standard Jewish practice. And it was a practice by Romans to Roman citizens. But if it was a Roman to a non-Roman citizen, a Jew, such as Jesus, they had a different rule in place. And the rule wasn't you have to stop at 40 lashes. It was, you need not stop until you have no more strength to continue. Christ was beaten in such a way, the scripture tells us, he was not able to carry his cross. It's not, it it appears it is not anything close to the 40 lashes that was common. They would take these whips that that would be on the end of these strips of leather tied with pieces of bone or chunks of metal. And they whipped Jesus so raw and so bloody that he had not the strength to carry his own cross. They had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry it. Even the, the time that he was on the cross, people often try to pretend it doesn't make sense that he would die so quickly on the cross. That's why, is he, is he already dead? Go and break his legs because generally speaking, it seems he died too quickly. Because people would keep themselves alive on a cross because the main way they would die ultimately was suffocation because of the way that it would create pressure. And so you would push yourself up in order to be able to breathe. But Christ had not the strength left in himself to even be able to sustain his life as long as others because he was beaten down and weakened. The, the extent of what he went through We don't know it. We cannot compare it with anything we've ever known. Some say, and maybe it's likely that it's true, that had they not then taken Christ and crucified him, he would have died from the wounds inflicted upon him and the blood loss involved. I mean, the severity and intensity of it, and that was not the worst of it. At the end of those three hours of darkness, Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there would be in that moment, he has borne the full weight of the wrath of his Father. And, and, and what that means, we cannot even understand. But I guarantee you that as Jesus was contemplating the cup that he was to drink, the thing that he most dreaded was being forsaken of the Father. And bearing the full weight of his wrath against sinful men and women like you and me. And what I guess is, is, is um, difficult for me to consider... In my humanity, which is all I am, ultimately, I feel like I can understand something of how much the physical pain hurt. And so when I think on that, it tears me up that he had to go through that for me. But what he went through in those last moments was even greater, and I just can't grasp that. And so in the suffering Savior, we see the whips and the wounds that were put upon him. And the wonderful thing that the scriptures remind us, both in Peter and in Isaiah 53, by his wounds, we are healed. And so we see his, his, the whips and wounds. We see he also bore the words as person after person, people after people, came by and mocked him and mistreated him and abused him. If you're really this, if you're really that, if God's really your father. And in all of those things, what's the answer? I am those things. And Jesus, as he said, even, even when he was being arrested, I could appeal to my father and he would send 12 legion of angels down. If you're really the son, come down off that cross. Could Jesus have come down off that cross? Did he have the ability? Remember, when they came to him also in the garden, and and they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? When he first said, the Gospel of John records, I am he. What happened to those soldiers who came? They all fell down floored. Every single one of these persons who is mocking them, Jesus could have dropped them with a word. Like a lamb silent, he bore it. He took all of that abuse, knowing that what they're saying is not true. What they're mocking I really am. They're denying my relationship with the Father. Which is everything that I am for all eternity. And they are denying that. And Jesus bore it. And did not react. And did not respond. And took it. So not only the wounds and the whips. but The words and then lastly. The wrath of God that was poured out. So in this passage, in in today's message, we saw three different things. The signs, the sorrow, and the suffering. Under the signs, we looked at the cult, the cloaks, the cut branches, and the cries. And they declared homage, praise, recognition. That Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the promised one. Even in a sense that he is the one sent of God. God very God. In the sorrow, in the anguish, we see Christ demonstrate in His prayer a a recognition of God's sovereignty, the reality of great struggle and sorrow and suffering, and yet full and complete submission. In the suffering Savior, we see and hear of those whips and wounds, of those words that were thrown and cast at Him, and of the wrath that He bore. And He did this all in order that we... Might know God. And that we might be reconciled. When the scripture says at times. You have not yet resisted sin. To the point of the shedding of blood. Sometimes we don't take seriously enough. What Christ bore that we might be set free from a life of sin. Brothers. Sisters. By the grace of God. He bore the wrath for us. And he set us free. Not only from its penalty to come but it's power today that we are in Christ more than conquerors greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world by faith we shall and do overcome amen let's pray Lord as we contemplate these things we are so thankful for your word that records them Lord, we're thankful for the truth of it. And when we consider the truth of who you are and who you're in, in your word and what you've revealed. Lord, it is so different than all of the stories and man-made myths that various people and cultures have come up with. Lord, all of the stories of men, none compare to the majesty and the mystery and the matchless truth and reality of what you have accomplished in Christ your son. And we thank you, God, that you've proven it to be true by bringing him forth from the grave, emerging victorious, being declared the Son of God with power, that we might know him risen, our Savior, our Lord. Save us, we pray. Lord, we look around at the world around us and we see their struggle. We see their depth of sin. We see the darkness that they're in. And we call out to you again, Hosanna. Save us, save them, we pray. Lord, we know that they don't understand. So we pray that as we share the gospel, that you would be pleased to send forth your spirit and give them understanding that they might know you and your son whom you have sent, that they might be found in you, not having a righteousness of their own, but the righteousness that comes by faith in God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.